Well, good morning, everyone. One of the most difficult lessons for Jesus' disciples to learn was the lesson on humility. They wanted to be the greatest. Jesus said, Matthew 18, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. They wanted to be first. Jesus told them that the first would be last. Jesus warned them in the parable of the workers in the vineyard about the evil eye, an ungodly envy of others that wants to be above others and ahead of others. And these lessons in lowliness were hard to learn. For the twelve, it seemed like the closer they got to Jerusalem, the more they thought about which of them would be the first, who would be the greatest. According to Matthew 19 and verse 28, they were expecting to sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, which is what Jesus had promised them. But they couldn't seem to keep from looking at those around them and wondering who would have the most glorious throne. They were constantly comparing themselves with others, seizing or sizing themselves up against one another. Who is the most gifted? Who is the greatest? Who will have the best seat in the kingdom? These are the kinds of questions that they were asking. And it's easy for us 2,000 years later to kind of look down on those guys as a overly competitive men, proud men seeking first place. But we also have to learn the lessons of humility and lowliness in the kingdom. We also have to become like children to put off the desire for recognition. We have to put to death that longing for preeminence and that love of being first. And there's no better text to help us with that, to help us change our perspective on these things than what we have before us in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 28. And so let's get that in our minds here. Let's read our text, Matthew chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 20 to 28 this morning. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup? that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, James and John used their mother 
in an effort to secure the top spots in the kingdom. They want the seats of honor and power. They want their thrones to be a couple of steps higher than the thrones of Peter and Andrew. They want the thrones with the most ornate decorations and the thickest gold overlay. In short, they want to be like Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10. Remember what Solomon had achieved in 1 Kings 10, 4, and 5? It says, when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food at his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, their cupbearers, and his burnt offerings, and 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 his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 18 to 20 describes Solomon's throne. It says, The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps. And the throne had a round top, and on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests, while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of the step, on the six steps. It was The like of it was never made in any kingdom. And that seems to be what uh, James and John want. They want these positions of honor. They want to take the breath away of everyone who comes to visit them as they kind of really are at the top amongst the 12. But even if we put the best possible spin on their request and say that what they want is places closest to the Lord, where they can do the most for His cause and for His name, and even even then we have to acknowledge that there's something self-seeking and self-serving in their request. And they do not know what they're asking. They do not understand that the way to greatness or, or they don't, they don't understand the way to greatness and they don't really even understand what true greatness is. And as usual, our Lord is going to use this as an opportunity to teach them how to be truly great in the kingdom and how to lay up a great reward in heaven. And these are lessons that we all need to learn, not just intellectually as well. We need to really learn this in our hearts. We need to learn this so that it changes how we live in our day-to-day lives. And I called this message, The Path to Greatness. The Path to Greatness. The Lord gives us directions to the top. And so if we would be first, here is the way. And it doesn't really matter how we think about this first place or how we think about this greatness. Whether if we think about it in regards to reward or usefulness or closeness to Christ, or in bringing Him glory. All of these ideas and more are kind of, they they meet together at the top, where Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, or whoever would be first among you. All of these ideas are there, reward, usefulness, closeness to Christ, bringing glory to God. All of these things really come together, and the Lord shows us the way to accomplish these things. You see, the disciples' idea of greatness was wrong. They wanted honor and glory and power for themselves. They wanted to be served and to be recognized. They wanted to be above others. And all of that is going to be corrected in our passage. But as we look at this this morning, don't miss the fact that there is still room 
for the right kind of greatness. You see, we need disciples of Jesus Christ who seek to be great in the way that our Lord lays out here. The world and the church need men and women who will pursue this greatness that they might be useful to the King and that they might bring glory to God by their lives and by their service. We're not to pursue the kind of greatness that the world looks for. Again, in verse 26, it shall not be so among you. But don't say then, okay, well, if that's the case, then I'm just going to be mediocre. No, that's not the way. That's not what our Lord would have us do. We're to pursue a different kind of greatness. There's a, a humble kind of greatness that should mark every Christian. It's a lowly greatness. And it's the greatness of a humble service that seeks to bless others for the glory of God. It's a greatness that models the greatest one of all time, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so let's get into this then this morning. Let's see the path to greatness that our Lord paves for us. And it starts out with James and John's plot to obtain greatness in the world's way. And we're going to call this number one in our outline. Number one is the plot for greatness. The plot for greatness in verses 20 and 21. It says there, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something, and he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left in your kingdom. In the parallel passage in Mark, Mark chapter 10, Mark doesn't mention the mother. And sometimes gospel writers leave out certain details. Matthew tells us about the mother of James and John and her role in this whole thing. But they all came together. She came with her sons. Now, you don't need to turn there right now, but in Matthew 27, 55 and 56... There's certain women there at the cross and they had followed Jesus from Galilee and they had ministered to him. And here's the women at the cross, according to Matthew 27, there is Mary Magdalene, there was Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and there was the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And that's the, the lady we're talking about here today, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now in the parallel passage in Mark 15 and verse 40, we also have Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, a little different pronunciation on Joseph, but Mary and Mary, and then we have Salome, Salome. And so it's very likely that Salome was the mother of James and John. Okay, you guys, you guys got that? Okay, just stick with me. This is important here. Now, if we go to the parallel passage in the book of John, and I want you to actually turn there, go to John 19, 25, John 19, 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And so we've got Mary Magdalene again, and we've got now another Mary. This one is the wife of Clopas. And if I had to guess, I would guess that Mary, the wife of Clopas, was also Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, right? Probably pretty logical. Now that leaves one other person. Where is Salome? 
Where is the mother of the sons of Zebedee? And, and it's likely, although we can't necessarily be certain about this, it's likely that she was also Jesus' mother's sister. Do you see that in the text there? Jesus' mother was there and his mother's sister. Now, it's possible that Matthew, Mark, and John just all chose different women of the many that Matthew mentioned so that we have three Marys there. We have Salome, and we also have the mother of the sons of Zebedee, and we have Jesus' mother's sister. So that could be three different women. But it seems more likely that Salome is Mary's sister, wife of Zebedee, mother of James and John. And then what that means then is that she is also anti-Salome to Jesus. I see some of you nodding there, and I, I, I'm just so thankful that we're in Lacrete here where you guys can follow those kinds of relational kind of connections or whatever. But whether it's anti-Salome or not, James and John put their mother up to this. And she asked the question, but Jesus, in his response, he, he replies to the brothers in verse 22. And so in, if you look again at verse 22 of our text, and I guess we're over in, in uh, John again, but over to chap, Matthew 20, verse 22, Jesus answered Salome, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, you do not know what you are asking. And then he says, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And so it seems here that, that at least by the middle of verse 22, Jesus is speaking directly to the brothers. And so they put their mother up to this, but Jesus is going to reply mostly to them. Now, a number of commentators pointed out that women have a way of asking things that men cannot get away with. And I think that's about right sometimes. James and John are kind of taking advantage of this reality. And to some extent, it seems to work because I imagine that if James and John came to Jesus with this request, I imagine that they would have received a firmer rebuke. But they've got a kind of a, a layer of defense by kind of standing behind their mother. And their mother comes very respectfully. She kneels before Jesus, which is also the, the same word that often means worship, but it's just likely that she bows to one who's superior here, and she comes and she asks for something. Verse 21, he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And so she wants him to say she wants him to give the word and, and, and say that they can have this request. Now, the Legacy Standard Bible translates this somewhat less literally, but it, it gives the idea where it says there, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. Now, the right hand of the king was the strong hand, and it was second place of command in the kingdom. It was the place of honor and power and closeness to the king. And the left hand was not as highly regarded, but I don't think we're meant to make anything different of that. She's simply asking that her sons would have the top positions in the kingdom. And notice that she's expecting a very literal kingdom on earth, one in which her sons will rule over the world at Jesus' side. 
And Jesus does not correct this and say, oh, oh, no, no, my kingdom is a, a spiritual kingdom. It's a, it's a spiritual reign in people's heart. There is no right or left-hand thrones to sit on. And so like Matthew 19, 28, these verses don't really fit an all-millennial or a post-millennial view of the kingdom. This fits best with a premillennial, literal understanding of the kingdom in which Jesus, the Messiah, is going to reign from and over the earth. In fact, it's probably fair to say that James and John are expecting Jesus to set up the kingdom right away, right away when they get to Jerusalem. They've not really understood his teaching about suffering and dying and being raised from the dead, and so they're expecting when they get to Jerusalem that all of a sudden the kingdom is going to be established. In fact, on the way to Jerusalem in uh in Luke 19, verse 11, they were anticipating that the kingdom would be set up right away, and Jesus tells them a parable to teach them that it's not going to happen right away. But they have not understood that Jesus would die and rise again and ascend to the right hand of the Father, and that the kingdom would not be established until a second coming of Messiah after a period of time. But regardless of the timing of the kingdom... And when it's established, they have asked for the primary places and they asked through their mother. And that was the plot for greatness. The plot for greatness. Now let's go and see number two. Let's see the probe. The probe regarding greatness in verse 22. And Jesus is going to probe them. He's going to ask them a question and help them to think about what they are asking. Now, it's possible when Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking in verse 22, that he's also directing that to the mother. But from then on, the mother kind of drops out of view and Jesus speaks directly with James and John. And it's James and John that the disciples are upset with, not so much their mother. Jesus answered in verse 22, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking. None of them understand what it would require to have these positions. The mother would not have asked for this if she knew what she was asking. The sons wouldn't have wanted it either. They don't yet understand that to be on the right and on the left in the kingdom requires suffering and sacrifice now. Jesus asked if they were able to drink the cup that he would drink, and they say that they are, but, but you have to wonder if they even know what he's talking about at that point. Now, the cup that Jesus would drink is mentioned again in Matthew 26, 39, and so why don't you turn over to Matthew 26. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is Jesus' hour of prayer before his betrayal and trial before his suffering and death. And I'll read the whole section here. Matthew 26, let's start at verse 38. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The cup Jesus asked to have passed from him is the whole scope of his suffering and death. Now, of course, it's not possible that this cup passed from him because Jesus came to give his life as a ransom. But the cup is the sorrow, even the sorrow unto death, and everything that happened to him from Gethsemane till Golgotha, all of his suffering and his sin-bearing, that is the cup. And it includes bearing the wrath of God, absorbing the wrath of God in our place on the cross. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. Now in the Old Testament, the cup is often used as a metaphor for suffering. Most often, suffering that's associated with the judgment of the Lord. For example, Isaiah 51 verse 17 calls the, it the cup of His wrath. The cup of Yahweh's wrath. Now, of course, James and John are not going to drink the cup of wrath in the same way that Jesus bears God's wrath to save His people from their sins. But to be first in the kingdom in the way that they are requesting requires a life of sharing in the sufferings of Christ by taking up their cross and following after Him. And so they do not know what they're asking and they do not know what they're saying in verse 22 when they said to Him, we are able. In fact, the next time that we hear about somebody on the right and on the left of the Lord Jesus Christ is in Matthew 27 and verse 38. And I think there's an intended connection here. Um, Matthew 27, 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And so they don't understand that the way to this glory that they seek, this way to greatness that they want to be on the right and on the left in the kingdom also requires bearing the cross and suffering for Jesus' sake in the world. And so they don't know what they're asking. They don't know what they're saying when they say, we are able. But in verse 23, Jesus grants that they will indeed at some future point drink the cup that he drinks. And this is number uh, three in our outline, the preparation for greatness, we called this. The preparation for greatness. Verse 23, he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now Jesus is very gracious here. They don't know what they're talking about when they say that they're able. They're, they're not able, especially not with their lack of humility and their lack of dependence on the Lord. But when it comes time for Jesus to drink the cup, what happens? They, they can't even stay awake. And then when they come to arrest Jesus with swords and clubs in Matthew 26, 56, the text says there, then all the disciples left him and fled. But after the resurrection... 
And after what is recorded in Luke 24 and 45, this is after the resurrection, I'll read it for you here. Luke 24, 44 and 45. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus is opening the minds of his disciples. And so after the resurrection and after he opens their minds to understand the scripture and after the promise of receiving power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and when all of that was fulfilled, they did share in the Lord's suffering. And so the the Lord predicts here that you will drink my cup. And he's very gracious with them and eventually the Lord would fulfill that in their life. And they did take up their cross and they did follow Jesus. And so Jesus says in our text, you will drink my cup. Now as we kind of think about the cup that they did drink, let's let's turn over to the book of Acts and let's start in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, look at verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles. And of course, James and John are among the apostles. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And so they went and they taught in the temple as the angel said. And in verse 27, the apostles are arrested again. Look at it there, Acts 5.27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And Peter then gives them a brief gospel presentation. Jump down to verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. Again, the pressure of having people wanting to kill you, that's part of the cup that the disciples are drinking. But skip down to verse 40 of chapter 5. And when they had called the apostles, or when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ." And so again, James and John were apostles, and here they're rejoicing to be counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. They're drinking the cup that Jesus said they would. And now turn with me to chapter 12, look at verse, starting at verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And so James was killed with the sword. And eventually John would be exiled to Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation, or at least where he had the vision 
where he received uh, the vision that became that book. Now, we're not as sure about how John died. Again, James was killed with the sword. But it would seem that John died in old age. But James and John drank the cup of suffering, and the Lord enabled them to do it. And so let's go back to our text in verse 23. Jesus said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Jesus tells these men that the positions they want are prepared by God the Father. God has a plan and he has people lined up for the positions in that plan. And Jesus in his humanity did not or is not the one who decides who will occupy these positions. Now there's a few things that we can begin to draw from all of this now. There's a connection between rewards in the kingdom and suffering in this world. James and John wanted these great rewards. And Jesus says, in effect, you are asking for suffering and hardship in this world. G. Campbell Morgan said this, quote, When God prepares an office for a man, he prepares the man for the office, and there is a perfect fitness. And there seems to be a rule in God's household that usefulness and suffering go together. God works in our lives through trials of various kinds and makes us more like Christ. And there's even a special fellowship with God and Christ in suffering, which made the Apostle Paul say that he wanted to be found in Christ, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection that, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Again, that's Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11. Now, Paul's not saying there that he wants to earn his resurrection when he says that, that, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's not saying he wants to earn his resurrection. What he wants is he wants the power of Jesus' resurrection and his resurrection life to shine through him. And he came to recognize that that life, that resurrection life, shines through most clearly when he suffers with Christ. And in the midst of those sufferings, when he relies on Christ and he fellowships with Jesus Christ in those things, that's when Christ is manifested through his life and through our lives. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says that we are his workmanship. Created in Christ for good works, which God has created beforehand that we should walk in them. And so God has prepared good works for us to do, and He prepares us for those works by trials and difficulties in this life. And because of this, we can take great encouragement in our trials. God has prepared trials to prepare us for whatever service that He has prepared for us. We just sang John Newton's song, I asked the Lord that I might grow. And that song kind of reveals that we often as well don't know what we ask, but the Lord knows how to prepare us for whatever he has for us in this world and whatever he has for us in the next world.
Well, the ten heard about James and John trying to secure the top spots in the kingdom through their mother, and they got upset. Verse 24, this is number four. This is the provocation about greatness. Look at verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, I won't say much about this. They were indignant. They were angry. Indignant means to be angry about what is assumed to be wrong. And these men also, the ten also wanted the top spots in the kingdom. And they also don't know what they want. They don't get the greatness in the kingdom either. And Jesus is going to teach them again. And he starts in verse 25 by calling them to himself. And what a great picture that is there that everyone is mad. Everyone's mad at everyone else. And Jesus, the peacemaker, he, he brings them close to himself. And now let's look number five, the path to greatness. Number five, the path to greatness, starting in verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Jesus shows them the path to greatness and it's different than what we see in the world. The place to look for rulers in that day, that was among the Gentile rulers, that was among the Gentile world. The Romans were occupying Israel. They were the rulers there. And their rulers ruled and their great ones exercised authority over the people. And in that day, you could tell a ruler and, and who was great simply by looking. The rulers and the, the wealthy wore purple garments. Jesus called them soft garments, soft clothing in Matthew 11. Now the word translated lorded over means to have power over, to bring in subjection, to have mastery or to rule, to exercise lordship. The word comes from the word kurios, which is the word for lord, and so it's to lord if we want to say it that way. And the word is a compound word. The main part means to exercise authority, to rule, to lord. And the prefix added kind of strengthens the the, the verb so that, but it also means down. And so the idea then is to rule downwards, to rule those who are under you. And it's again tied to the word Lord so that it's to Lord downwards, or as we would more naturally say in English, to Lord over. And I say all that to point out that it, it doesn't necessarily have the negative connotation in English of of lording over people, which, which kind of brings thoughts of abuse of power or tyranny. It, it doesn't necessarily have that same kind of negative connotation. The idea is simply that in the world or among the Gentiles, the lords exercised their lordship over the people. The rulers were at the top, ruling those who were under them. And similarly, the great ones exercise authority and it's another compound, compound word with the same kind of down prefix. And so great ones, whoever that might be, great ones, they have authority and they use it from their position above the not so great. They exercise authority downwards over the people. And that's just the way of the world. It's just a statement of fact. 
From the days of emperors and kings, they stood above the people and they ruled them. And James and John and the ten, they wanted these lofty seats. They, uh, you know, the, and a seat is a really a, is a good word for this because the worldly leaders typically sit on their thrones while the people under them serve them. And they sit on their thrones and they get fat and, and they enjoy the labors of the inferiors. In the parallel passage in Luke, it uses the word benefactors. This is Luke 22, 25 and 26. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Jesus says, not so with you. We're not to have fancy titles. We're not to see ourselves as above others. Our text says, it shall not be so among you. And I want you to turn with me to a a similar teaching in Matthew 23 as we think about how it's not to be this way amongst us, not like the, the world. Look at Matthew 23. We'll start in verse 1. Jesus said to the crowds and to the, his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but, they, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, For you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted." Great disciples of Jesus Christ help other people follow Christ. They're not like the Pharisees who tie up these burdens but won't help others to carry them. Instead, they, they seek to honor the Lord by helping their brothers and sisters. We're not to seek honor for ourselves, but we're to seek honor for the Lord. We're not to exalt ourselves. Instead, in humility, we are to serve others, and especially one another. The greatest in 2311 is the servant. The greatest among you shall be your servant. The servant of other disciples of Christ, serving not to be seen by men, but to honor God. Our passage says basically the same thing again in verse 26. It shall not be so among you, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. The servant was one who gets something done for a superior. We could call that an assistant. The servant is an assistant working for somebody who is greater than them. And the servant helps the greater person. But for us, the greatest person is lowly and helps everyone else. 
But Jesus then goes even further in verse 27 and he says, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Slave is the Greek word doulos, a word that that we're going to need to know here, but the one who is going to be first among you must be your slave. Great among us requires servanthood, but first place belongs to the lowliest of all, to the slave. And the slave was really the lowest position in the ancient Near East. The slave never ruled, they never exercised authority, they served their master. And so we see then what a perspective change we need to have. The idea then is to forget about position, to leave off trying to be recognized as great, and to serve one another. Now this doesn't mean that we have to obey one another. We have one master, the Lord Jesus Christ, but we serve one another by obeying him. I love how Paul described this in one of my favorite passages in 2 Corinthians 4-5. He says there, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants. And again, the, the Greek word there is doulos, with ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, I am your slave for Jesus' sake. And that's what makes a good pastor right there, a slave of the congregation serving them for Jesus' sake. Now, it doesn't mean that he did what the Corinthians wanted all the time, but he served them like a slave for Jesus Christ. He served for their benefit and for Jesus' honor. And again, what a reversal this is. You see, in the world, slaves did the bidding of the great leaders that were over them, but in the church, the great ones are the servants. And so if you want to know how this looks, if you're going, well, well, what do we do, Mike? How do we, how do we live this out? Then think about the Lord Jesus Christ. See, he's going to set himself up now as the ultimate example of one who seeks to be first in the, in the way that he lays out here for his disciples. Jesus himself walked the path to greatness that he commends to the twelve, and I called this then number six in your outline, the pattern for greatness in verse 28. The pattern for greatness, number six. Look at verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many. Well, there's no one greater than Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man. And He came from heavenly glory. He is the image of the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. John 3.31 says about Him that He who comes from above is above all. And a little bit later it says, he who comes from heaven is above all. Ephesians 1.21 says that the risen Christ is seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And this exalted Lord, this glorious King came into the world. 
And he took upon himself what form? Philippians 2.7 says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Where that word there again is a doulos, a slave. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. To add to himself a human nature is called emptying. And, and he humbled himself in taking on humanity. And the veil, uh, he veiled the glory of his divine nature and came into the world. You see, he was the majestic creator of all things and he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He deserved all worship and honor and glory and might, but they didn't even recognize him. He came not to be served, although he deserved such service. He came to serve. And more than that, he came to give. He came to give his life as a ransom. That human nature that he took upon himself, he took that it, that he might give it for us. And in the giving of it, it is a payment. It's the price of release. The price of release. He, he made a payment, the greatest payment ever made, the, the life of God's only son. A ransom is a payment. It's the price of release. It's, it's usually paid to set a slave free or sometimes to negotiate the release of a prisoner of war. And, and the ransom is the price, the payment of that price. Jesus' ransom cost him his life in order to release us from the debt of our sin. And he drank the cup of wrath. He lived to earn for us a perfect righteousness and he died to pay the penalty for our sins. This verse is one of the clearest verses in the Gospels showing why Jesus died. He made a ransom payment for many, the text says. The word translated for there is the Greek word or the Greek preposition anti. And anti carries the idea of substitution. And so he made the payment that we could not have paid. And he died in our place as our substitute. That was the payment that he paid to set us free. And he, he made that payment in our place as a substitute for us. And those for whom he made that payment will never have to pay it themselves. He bore the wrath of God for us. Hallelujah. And this whole thing, his coming to serve and to give his life a ransom for many is now the pattern for us. Even as it says, even as the Son of Man did, so also we are to do. We are to serve and not to be served. Now we can never replicate his ransom. That was a once for all payment for our sin. But we can give our lives to do good for one another, expecting nothing in return. As Paul said in Philippians 2.17, Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And as he said to Timothy, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. We also are to pour out our lives for one another in sacrificial service to one another for the glory of God. If we want to be great, 
And again, we should desire a greatness, not to to be in some exalted position, but we should desire a greatness that is modeled after our Lord here. If we want to be great, then the way is in serving and even suffering for Jesus and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think a great way to think about this is just to think about your expectations. Think about your expectations and your relationships with others. What do you think you deserve? And if we think we deserve more than what a slave or a servant would deserve, I think we're, we're setting ourselves too high. We're to just seek to do good to our brothers and sisters and not worry about ourselves at all. Following Jesus on this path is the way to a great future reward. Following Jesus on this path is the way to great usefulness for God and for others. And following Jesus on this path is the way to bring glory and honor to our God who is worthy of all glory and honor. Jesus has shown us the way and our job is to follow by grace. Well, let's turn our thoughts now back to Jesus and back to what he has done for us. As we come now, we're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper. We're going to sing how deep the Father's love for us. And the deep love of the Father is shown for us in the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the Jesus would be sent by the Father and that he would come, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we're going to sing how deep the Father's love for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this teaching. And we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your love for us. That's really beyond words, beyond what we can explain. But we see it in your son dying on the cross to make that penalty for us and for our sins. And Father, we pray that you would help us because we know that We are not able to do this of our own, but we pray that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit and by the understanding of your word and by the knowledge of your resurrection that you would help us to live this kind of a life, to serve one another, to even serve one another as a slave, even as the great Lord Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve. Help us to follow this path and to drink the cup that you have appointed for us in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.